Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. After President Nixon's historic trip to China in 1972 and official normalization between the two countries in 1979, where did that leave Taiwan, the small and thriving Asian democracy that has been an ally of the United States in the Cold War era? Here with us to talk about the subject is Martin B. Gold. Mr. Gold is author of A Legislative History of the Taiwan Relations Act, Bridging the Strait. His book examines the passage of the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979, which defined U.S.-Taiwan relations after the United States diplomatic recognition of China. It analyzes how the legislation was shaped after extensive hearings, lengthy debates, and shared disagreement in Congress that eventually achieved broad consensus. Gold is an attorney in Washington and on the faculty of the, the Graduate School of Political Management at George Washington, George Washington University. He knows this subject well because he worked as a senior staffer for a decade when all this took place first for Senator Mark Hatfield of Oregon, and then Senate Minority Leader Howard Baker of Tennessee. Of this book, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch says, Gold reminds us of a time when policies were crafted and ideas were considered based on both particular interests and arguments in favor of the common good. Marty Gold, welcome. Good afternoon, and uh, very good to be with you. Uh, why did you, just to kind of start off, why did you decide to undertake this, this project of writing this book? Uh, fundamentally for two reasons. The first is that the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, although now almost 40 years old, has been enormously impactful in terms of U.S.-China relations. Uh, Taiwan was the major stumbling block originally to the normalization of those relations. Uh, if we had not come to some understanding on Taiwan, normalization would never have happened. And Taiwan has remained important throughout the 40 years uh, essentially that it happened since the time that President Carter normalized relations with Taiwan. Fundamentally, you have the most important bilateral relationship in the world, that is the U.S.-China relations, and a very significant factor inside of that relationship. I found it enormously important and something that deserved investigation. The second reason that I wrote it is uh, something that you alluded to uh, uh, when you mentioned Senator Hatch's comment. I have uh, worked in and around the Senate for the last 45 years. I remember a different time uh, when legislation like this could be resolved on a bipartisan basis. Uh, bipartisan coalitions formed on both sides of an issue rather than having the strong polarized partisan divide that we tend to see today. So it uh, is reminiscent of a time when the Senate worked, I think, uh, in the way that the Senate is supposed to work or some lessons for the present day. So I also wanted to explore that issue uh, and to try to use this legislation as sort of a guidepost uh, for how uh, the Senate might function uh, if it could. Nixon goes to China in February 1972 um, in what was a historic trip. At the time, how was the Nixon administration in Congress, in Congress as well, how, how was the political climate, what was the perspective on Taiwan at the time? There had been a very, very strong relationship between the United States and Taiwan dating back from the uh, time uh, that the People's Republic of China uh, was formed in 1949. Uh, the China lobby really grew out of that period. There was a moment in time after Chiang Kai-shek decamped from uh, the People's Republic uh, over, or from mainland China over to Taiwan, there was a time when it appeared as though the United States would not come to Taiwan's defense, and that the moment that the PRC could have an amphibious assault successfully launched against Taiwan, 
it would complete uh, the uh, Chinese Civil War. However, the intervening event was Korea. After the Korean War broke out, uh, relations between Chiang Kai-shek government and the United States markedly changed. And by 1954, after the Korean War had concluded, the United States was in a full-scale military alliance with Taiwan. It was called the Republic of China uh, from its uh, own uh, naming and also uh, the way we regarded it. We regarded it as a legitimate government of the country. We entered into a mutual defense treaty with it. We uh, pledged to defend it uh, and uh, essentially made it part of our Cold War military uh, architecture. So the China lobby was very strong in the United States. Uh, Taiwan was considered to be a, a very firm ally of this country. Uh, although by the time of Nixon's visit, uh, the Taiwan lobby had weakened to some degree, was not as strong as it had been in the very beginning. And although there were voices in the Congress, uh, Senator Mansfield, Senator Fulbright, Senator Kennedy, Senator Javits, and others who had talked about the need to rethink our relationships in Asia, still the premise was that uh, America was going to stand behind a traditional relationship with Taiwan and would continue to recognize uh, the uh, government in Taipei as a legitimate government of the whole country, alone, I would add, among the major countries of the world, which all of which had changed uh, to recognize the uh, PRC by that point. On the, on the road to rapprochement, um, Nixon and Kissinger conducted much of their diplomacy in secret. Although there were public signals, um, much of it was done through back channels. How did congressional Republicans and Democrats generally react to the announcement that uh, Nixon would be going to China in, in 72? The announcement was made um, on July the 15th, 1971, after Kissinger concluded the first of two trips that he made to, uh, to uh, the PRC in preparation for the Nixon visit. The first Kissinger trip was completely in secret. Uh, done uh, fundamentally almost incognito. Uh, Kissinger feigned an illness in Pakistan so that he could fly from Pakistan to China to conduct several days of talks with the Chinese leadership. And only after Kissinger came back from that trip was the announcement in California made uh, of Nixon's forthcoming visit to China. It was a thunderclap, really, uh, because uh, people were not expecting it. The United States had uh, again adhered to its very traditional positions on China. Uh, China was regarded as an enemy, as part of the uh, Sino-Soviet architecture in the Cold War, even though people understood that there were tensions between China and the Soviet Union, but fundamentally China was an enemy. And all of a sudden, Nixon, who was presumed to uh, be a strong uh, anti-communist, is announcing that he is going to China. So it came as an enormous surprise to the Congress, and not only, I would say, to the Congress, but also to American allies, particularly uh, Japan, uh, who had not, Japan had not been informed and felt uh, that it was caught flat-footed by, uh, by that change. But uh, the theory was that if it were not done in absolute secrecy, elements of the China lobby that were still quite powerful in the Congress would have found ways of torpedoing the overture. Nixon o opened up relations uh, with China in 72. Um, at the end of the trip, um, he and uh, the Chinese leadership uh, issued the Shanghai communique. Uh, but it was actually 
um, which, which stipulated the future relationship of the U.S. and China, but it was actually President Carter who normalized relations in 1979. Um, could you take us through the process of normalization? Uh, what does normalization actually mean, and what was the business, what was the business behind that? Well, normalization ultimately means the establishment of diplomatic relations between countries where they each recognize um, the other as the legitimate government of the country. Of course, Nixon uh, did not do that in 1972. Uh, it, is, it is clear uh, from what he had told the Chinese and, and from uh, materials that have since been declassified from the time of Nixon's visit, uh, that recognition of the People's Republic as the legitimate government of China is something that he considered doing in his second term. So uh, Nixon was prepared to take that initiative, but never had the opportunity to take the initiative. And uh, when uh, Kissinger has written you know, about the weakening effects of Watergate on a range of American policy matters, this is one of them, the inability to, uh, to uh, proceed with what you would have to do uh, to get the political consensus behind the normalization of relations, the moving away from recognition of the Taipei government uh, to the recognition of the Beijing government and a replacement structure for the Taipei relationship short of diplomatic relations. Nixon could not do that. Then it was left to Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford also intended uh, to do something about China um, and I think likely would have done so had he not been challenged for the 1976 Republican presidential nomination by Governor Reagan. When Governor Reagan got in the race, he basically froze Ford on two major policy questions. One was China, and the other was Panama Canal, because that was also uh, a, a policy change, very controversial, like, like China could be, that was left over from Nixon's time. So Ford could do nothing about the Panama Canal, Ford could do nothing about China. He went to China in December of 1975 and basically told the uh, Chinese leadership, uh, watch this space. Uh, when I get reelected, I'll deal with normalization. Um, meantime, he didn't get reelected. And so therefore, all of this was, was put on uh, President uh, Carter's plate. President Carter did not initially make China a major priority. Uh, the time uh, of uh, Jimmy Carter's uh, presidency uh, is, I think, probably overlooked for the turmoil that existed in world politics, but the turmoil was all over the place. We were in the uh, aftermath of uh, American withdrawal from Vietnam. Uh, there were major negotiations on Panama, which Carter put first and foremost in terms of his foreign policy priorities. Uh, there were continuing negotiations in the Middle East that ultimately led to the Camp David Accords between Israel and Egypt in 1978 with tremendous investment of President Carter's personal time. Uh, in Iran, uh, the Islamic movement was moving to overthrow the Shah, and in fact, at the very time when uh, we had the uh, negotiations, the conclusion, excuse me, of negotiations to normalize relations with China, the Shah was overthrown and the Ayatollah came to power in Iran. Uh, the Soviets were very much on the march, uh, both in Angola and West Africa and in East Africa and Ethiopia and Somalia. The Soviets were very much expanding um, arms capability and there was a thought that the United States might be falling behind in terms of military capacity. Uh, 
and uh, in the same year, by the way, as Carter uh, uh, entered upon diplomatic relations with China, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. So the context for all of this is an ex a world in turmoil. And so if you look at Carter's priorities in the world in turmoil, uh, I would say that priorities were primarily Panama in the first place and also discussions uh, in the Middle East. Um, he allowed Secretary of State Vance to go to China on an exploratory visit in 1977 uh, to see what might be achieved. Uh, but uh, at that time, the American position was uh, that they would have to maintain some sort of official presence in, uh, in uh, Taiwan, a liaison office or, or something of the kind, uh, because of the very complex and deeply contextual relationship we had had with Taiwan. The Chinese would hear nothing of it. When Vance, uh, they gave Vance a stiff arm when he left, they complained that relations uh, had actually been set backward. Uh, so at that point, uh, Carter withdrew from further activity um, for almost a year's time until May of 1978. May of 1978, at the urging of Zbigniew Brzezinski, the president agreed to send Dr. Brzezinski to Taiwan excuse me, to the People's Republic, excuse me, with a, with a, uh, a message. And the message was, the United States has made up its mind. We'd like to negotiate uh, the terms and conditions under which we might actually come to a rapprochement with your country and be able to have mutual recognition. And China had its conditions, and the United States had its conditions, uh, but the Chinese agreed to uh, enter upon those negotiations uh, Carter appointed Leonard Woodcock, who had been the former head of the United Auto Workers Union, as the principal U.S. negotiator. And through the, um, the uh, summer and fall months of 1978, uh, those uh, negotiations uh, went forward, uh, leading to an announcement uh, on December the 15th, 1978, that the negotiations had successfully uh, occurred and that the uh, United States and the People's Republic had agreed to recognize each other. Uh, one other thing as a data point I should point out <clears throat> is that the Brzezinski trip, unlike the Kissinger trip, was well covered by the press. As a result, the notion that something significant might be happening on China policy uh, came to Congress's attention. And uh, Senator Bob Dole, of Kansas, a Republican, and Senator Dick Stone of Florida, a Democrat, sponsored legislation as an amendment to an unrelated bill in the summer of 1978 saying, we want to be consulted, we the Senate, we the Congress, want to be consulted before you take steps that will implicate the mutual defense treaty that we have with Taiwan. In the Senate, the uh, Stone uh, and Dole amendment passed 94 to nothing. And Carter signed the legislation saying that there would be such consultation. But Carter knew what Nixon knew, which was that consultation really was just an opportunity to give fodder to opponents of a change of the policy. So even though they had promised consultation, the negotiations that Woodcock conducted with uh, the Chinese were really done in a very small circle of people uh, and not including the Congress. Um, and. Uh, that 
led to successful negotiations, but uh, substantial anxiety within the Congress itself and anger on Capitol Hill. You write that Carter's approach, um, and maybe you're getting at this here, that Carter's approach to normalization had its costs. Was it ultimately controversial for not being um, as inclusive with members of Congress? Uh, it was highly controversial for that exact reason. Uh, Warren Christopher was um, the uh, Under Secretary of State, uh, excuse me, the Deputy Secretary of State at that time, later became Secretary of State under President Clinton. Warren Christopher wound up being the point man for two uh, very difficult uh, tasks. He was the lead witness uh, for the uh, Carter administration before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee when the Taiwan Relations Bill uh, was working its way through Congress. Therefore, he had to take all of the criticism on uh, from members of Congress that said, you promised to consult us and you did not. The second uh, short straw that uh, Secretary Christopher drew was that he wound up being the American representative tasked to go to Taiwan after Carter made the announcement, but before the change in recognition actually occurred. There was a two-week period at the end of 1978. So Carter sent Christopher to Taiwan to try to give some reassurance to the uh, government there of continued American interest in their welfare and continued American uh, willingness to have them engage in various uh, economic and cultural relations. There were more than 50 programs that uh, existed between the United States and uh, Taiwan, or at least programs in which Taiwan was able to take part when they were a recognized government. And what Carter was trying to say is, all those programs will continue except for the old 1954 Mutual Defense Treaty. We have to end that. But everything else will continue, and we want to give you our assurances on this respect. So Christopher goes to Taipei, where he is met by violent, angry, violent demonstrations, uh, some would say that were government-induced, so that the displeasure uh, of uh, people on Taiwan with the change in U.S. policy could be felt. So therefore, uh, the uh, responsibility that Warren Christopher had in all of this, which was great, included uh, listening to the Congress complain about lack of consultation and listening to the uh, Taiwanese complain about the change in policy, including being part of the violent demonstrations. It was, it was a very controversial point. In his memoir, uh, Christopher had a, a wonderful line. He said that if you ever succeed in circumventing the Congress on a matter of foreign policy, the Congress will never uh, forgive or forget your success. And I think his, this experience with Taiwan and, uh, and the normalization policy was uh, one of the bases for writing that. Now onto the Taiwan Relations Act. Um, how, did, how did it originate in Congress? It was uh, introduced in both uh, houses by the chairman of the uh, respective Foreign Affairs Committee. So Frank Church Committee introduced the bill in the Senate, and Clint Zablocki of Wisconsin uh, introduced it in the House. But when a bill is introduced that is really the administration bill, uh, it is designated, introduced by request. Since only a member of Congress can, can initiate a piece of legislation, 
the president can introduce a bill, so they will ask somebody in Congress to accommodate them, and that's what Church and Zablocki did. But uh, when those bills were introduced uh, in early February of, uh, of 1979, uh, Church in particular made a point of saying that the bill was very deficient in a number of respects and that the uh, amendment process in the Congress was going to have to uh, take care of, uh, take care of uh, fixing a number of the problems. He said, uh, he said, I consider the legislation deficient and in need of improvement in several areas. And uh, one of them, I suppose the most major of those areas was a failure to provide a statement of official U.S. policy concerning the future security of Taiwan because the original Carter legislation really only concerned uh, the maintenance of uh, cultural and economic relations, providing a statutory basis for what Secretary Christopher told the Taiwan government uh, would be a continuity of American uh, relationships. So Carter put out an executive order that says, in the meantime, until we can pass appropriate legislation, these programs will be, considered, will be continued by my executive order. But we want to replace the executive order and supersede it with legislation. That's what I'll propose to the Congress. And that is what Church said, not good enough. And uh, we need something more on security. And Church, by no means, was alone in that. You had mentioned in your book a testimony uh, given by experts uh, like Winston Lord, the future ambassador to China, and uh, uh, then he was uh, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, but he had uh, been the assistant to Henry Kissinger and accompanied him in China in 72. What Lord says that uh, in his testimony that Taiwan's security was okay for the foreseeable future. Um, if that's the case, then why, I mean, if, if people of that stature are saying that, why, um, what, what do the Taiwanese exactly need in terms of their defenses? You know, it's an interesting question because uh, American uh, military personnel, senior military officers who were uh, also uh, before the Foreign Relations Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, similarly concluded that in the immediate term, Taiwan had sufficient uh, resources to defend itself. Okay, not only what they already had on hand, but things that they had on order that were in the pipeline for delivery and so forth. That it would not be necessary to take uh, additional steps to reinforce them in the immediate term. Because in the first place, uh, nobody thought that in the immediate term, the PRC would be able to launch a successful amphibious uh, attack. The Taiwan Strait is 100 miles wide. They didn't think the PRC could cross the Taiwan Strait and launch a successful amphibious attack, given what they had available and given what Taiwan had available in 1979. That's, that's one thing. Second place, there was a general sense that in the immediate term, the PRC would not uh, launch an attack on Taiwan because they knew that in doing so, they would jeopardize their newfound relationship with the United States. They wanted a relationship with the United States uh, fundamentally for two reasons. The first uh, was as a counterweight to the Soviet Union because uh, that was a time of very severe uh, Sino-Soviet tensions. And the second reason is that this comes in the early moments of Deng Xiaoping's uh, reform and opening up policy where you're coming out of the Cultural Revolution, Mao is uh, only a couple of years in the ground, and you're trying to find a way uh, 
to open the Chinese economy. For, to open the Chinese economy, you need capital, and you need investment, and you need technology. And you're not going to be able to get that if you have a good relationship with the United States. If you take steps against Taiwan, you're going to jeopardize that very important initiative. So both for economic reasons and security reasons, um, there would be uh, a priority uh, in Deng's policy that he wouldn't, or he wouldn't want to jeopardize by trying to attack Taiwan with a problematic assault anyway. So for reasons of logistics and also uh, policy and politics, an attack on Taiwan seemed improbable in 1979. That's why they said, for the time being, they're okay, they're sufficiently strong. The concern was uh, what will happen over the longer term uh, where uh, Taiwan, uh, where those power ratios would begin to change. China would get stronger as its economy got stronger and as it emerged from the Cultural Revolution, and Taiwan would atrophy. And at some point, the power relationship would be different. So um, while there was not a, uh, not a uh, desire to continue to uh, shovel weaponry at Taiwan during 1979. And in fact, there was an agreement between the United States and China that no new weapons would be sold to Taiwan in 1979. The real question was, what about the long term? Uh, the Chinese very much thought that uh, once the mutual defense treaty with Taiwan ended, uh, which essentially was going to be at the end of 1979, the, the treaty had a year's termination clause and it would end by the end of 79, that uh, arms sales to Taiwan would not be made in the future. And the United States was committed to making arms sales in the future. So it was a point of tension between the PRC and the U.S. that almost led to the scuttling of normalization at the last minute in 1978, just before the announcement and has never been something that the Chinese uh, have ever been comfortable with. That's why every time in the years that followed, when we did sell arms to Taiwan to make sure that there were some kind of maintenance of military balance, the Chinese have always protested it. They accepted our doing so because they had those overarching policy reasons to do that. But they have never liked it, have always protested it, so that it would never appear as though they acquiesced in it. You had indicated that there were sharp disagreements within, within Congress uh, regarding the Taiwan Relations Bill. Was this, were these disagreements, were they, were they, were they, uh, were they partisan disagreements? Were they, did it fall along party lines? Um, what was sort of the makeup of who supported it and who, who supported the bill and who opposed, who opposed the bill? The, the, the disagreements were absolutely bipartisan. And uh, what I mean by that is, this going back to again to the the Senate of nineteen uh, the Senate of nineteen seventy nine and the House of Representatives of nineteen seventy nine, um, you had bipartisan coalitions form on both sides of the issue. And when I say the issue, I'm not really talking about final passage, because I think people, as a general matter, understood that you'd make the bill look as much like your preference as you could. And then you had to support final passage because we had to find a statutory way of keeping relations with Taiwan going. That in the end, if you voted against the bill because you just didn't think it was strong enough, you really weren't doing Taiwan any favors. So 
better to, to, to entrench some sort of a relationship with Taiwan uh, as best you could. That was the idea. However, the vote in the Senate, for example, was 85 to 4 on final passage. That indicates nothing except what I've just mentioned, the need to do something about Taiwan. But when you got down to amendments, the amendments were in very many respects much closer. And the, disagree the disagreeing positions did not break down on a partisan basis. Uh, Frank Church, who was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, and Jacob Javits of New York, who was the ranking Republican on the committee, joined arms uh, and voted the same way on every amendment that was presented in the Senate. Uh, opposition was also bipartisan. So people like uh, Jesse Helms of uh, North Carolina, uh, Fritz Hollings of who was a Helms was Republican, Fritz Hollings, a Democrat from South Carolina, Harry Byrd, a senator from uh, Virginia who was uh, an independent, uh, Barry Goldwater, a Republican from, uh, from Arizona, uh, formed a, a core group of opposition. Bob Dole was part of that opposition, for example. And uh, the uh, amendments tended to fall on, on two broad subjects. One was how to provide the maximum degree of security to Taiwan short of, in essence, recreating the Mutual Defense Treaty. The Chinese had made it very clear that a condition of normalization was that the Mutual Defense Treaty had to end. So you could not have a circumstance in the Congress where you de facto recreated the Mutual Defense Treaty. But short of that, short of that, how far could you go? Um, Senator Percy, of uh, uh, Illinois uh, offered an amendment that essentially said that some kind of Chinese move against Taiwan, whether in the form of a military assault or an economic embargo or some kind of economic pressure, uh, would implicate the security interests of the United States. The committee reported language said it would be a matter of grave concern. Percy says, not good enough. It's a matter uh, that implicates the security interest of the United States, almost committing the United States to go to war in the event that China took these steps. So no mutual defense treaty, but a, a statement from uh, the Congress that uh, American interests are directly implicated and we may have to go to war over them. The amendment was ultimately defeated, but not without a very hard day's worth of work. When that amendment was first brought up, and this is my point about, about the divisions within the Senate and how they weren't partisan. When that amendment was first brought up, Senator Church, on behalf of the committee, moved to table it, moved to kill it, in other words, right? His effort, which was an effort by the senior Democrat and the senior Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, backed by the Senate Majority Leader, that effort to table it failed. All of a sudden, the Carter administration goes into high gear because if that amendment passes, it jeopardizes the entire China policy. And finally, by day's end, they reversed the outcome and the amendment died. But it is an example of how divisions in the Senate did not break down on party lines and how controversies over amendments very much exposed fissures in the Senate. The other, the other uh, area of fissures was how official a relationship we could have with Taiwan. The Chinese insisted that we could not have anything looking like an official relationship. 
That was a condition of normalization. But there were people who wanted to create the liaison office in Taiwan. Bob Dole tried to do that. There were people who wanted to have uh, the director of the American Institute on Taiwan confirmed by the Senate. That would be making it an official kind of relationship. So the opponents of the policy, uh, the Carter policy, pushed to get the strongest possible security relationship with Taiwan and the most official possible relationship with Taiwan. Uh, in the end, the administration was able to prevail on these questions with very strong support from certain Senate Republicans, uh, but not easily, and also not easily in the House of Representatives, where um, they had uh, also a robust amendment process, uh, and uh, the visions were uh, very vividly expressed. So the divisions in the Congress were not the ones that were expressed on final passage. That was almost non-controversial. They were the divisions on amendments. And, and uh, if certain amendments had passed, it either would have scuttled the China policy, or Carter would have had to veto the legislation and uh, hope that it could be sustained. And there was, there, were, there was a House version and a Senate version of the bill that you had, um, you had discussed earlier. How did the two houses ultimately come uh, on a resolution for the bill? When each house passed its own version, and, and by, by healthy uh, margins, uh, then they went to uh, a conference committee uh, to work out were rel what, what, what were relatively minor differences. They were, they were modest differences, not in terms of broad policy objectives, but between the means to the end kind of, uh, of things. But they worked uh, through uh, it uh, via a conference committee, so uh, that was a very common method back in 1979. Still exists today, but in those days it was almost routinely employed on all major legislation. The conference committee reported a compromise version uh, after a couple of weeks of work, and uh, the compromise was brought back to the floor of both chambers, and the conference report was agreed to by both chambers. So. Uh, then they had something that they could send to the president. You talked about this idea of the termination of the mutual defense treaty um, that happened as a result of normalization with uh, the People's Republic of China. Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona took uh, President Carter uh, all the way to the Supreme Court over the constitutionality of unilaterally uh, withdrawing from the treaty. Uh, what was the outcome of that, of that case? The outcome of that case was that the Supreme Court essentially took a pass on it and said that it, the, uh, the matter was not ripe for judicial determination because uh, Congress had not conclusively expressed a view that there was a role for the Congress in a, in a termination of a mutual defense treaty. Uh, and let me back up here a minute because uh, to, to explain this a bit more. Um, Normally, the Supreme Court is not going to get itself involved in a political question. The political question would be a question that can be resolved through the political process uh, where uh, somehow uh, constitutional questions are not uh, ripe for decision. So back at the beginning of 1979, Senator Harry Byrd of Virginia, this is Harry Byrd Jr., whose father had also been a longtime senator from Virginia, but this is Byrd Jr. Byrd Jr. Uh, introduced a Senate resolution that said it was the sense of the Senate that the termination of a mutual defense treaty would require Senate approval. Now, um, 
When the Taiwan relations legislation was uh, on the floor, Senator Byrd offered an amendment that captured that concept. He was going to propose it as an amendment to the Taiwan relations bill. This struck fear into the heart of the Democratic leadership and the leadership of the Foreign Relations Committee, because it was entirely possible that framed that way, which was to say framed uh, as a defense of Senate prerogatives, the amendment might pass. If the amendment actually passed, and if this actually became part of the law that President Carter had to sign, which would be acknowledging the role of the Senate, then um, Carter would have to uh, submit the uh, termination of the Mutual Defense Treaty to the Senate's approval process. And what approval process was that? Nobody knew for sure, but it could mean that the same number of senators who had to approve the ratification of the defense treaty itself, which is two-thirds, constitutional two-thirds, might have to approve withdrawing from the treaty. There is no way, no way, that Carter was ever going to command a two-thirds vote in the Senate to withdraw from that treaty. So the result would be that the treaty would remain in force. And if the treaty remained in force, then the People's Republic of China would have walked away from that normalization process. Right. It was one of the three fundamental conditions of normalization. You can't have, you can't recognize the Taipei government, mm -hmm. you cannot have troops on Taiwan, and you cannot have a mutual defense treaty. So Carter says, we recognize the Beijing government, won't have any troops on Taiwan, and we won't have a mutual defense treaty. And if the Senate were good, self into the process and say, well, yes, you will. Yes, you will. Where would it leave the China policy? So for people like Goldwater and Byrd, who hated what Carter was doing in recognizing the PRC and wanting to keep the China policy as it had been, attacking the policy by the mechanism of attacking treaty termination was uh, the way through for them. Well, the leadership finally prevailed on Harry Byrd not to offer the amendment or to withdraw the amendment from the Taiwan relations uh, legislation on the promise that the Foreign Relations Committee would later on consider his resolution on this topic and bring it to the floor after a committee markup and that the legislation would be made pending. So Harry Byrd said, all right, I'll stand down for now. Taiwan Relations Act was signed into law in April of 1979. In June, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee reports out, after extensive hearings, the Harry Byrd Resolution with a committee amendment that basically says, yes, the Senate has a role in this, but the President can do it unilaterally under these various conditions, which essentially neutered the Harry Byrd Resolution. It comes to the Senate floor, and Harry Byrd offers his original proposal as an amendment to the committee amendment. So the choice is, do you prefer Harry Byrd's formulation, or do you prefer the committee's formulation? The Senate voted overwhelmingly for Harry Byrd. Now, Frank Church, who's chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, says, oh my God, here we go. Surely, this only applies prospectively, not to the Taiwan situation, but to treaties that may come up in the future. And Byrd would not give him that, and Goldwater would not give him that. And so, because Byrd and Goldwater did not agree 
that the Harry Bird uh, resolution wouldn't apply to Taiwan, in other words, only in the future, because they wouldn't give him that, Frank Church would never allow the Senate to vote finally on the final passage of that resolution. So therefore, action in the Congress to express a disagreement with the President was incomplete. And it was the incompletion that led to the Supreme Court saying, we do not have a final controversy between the President and the Congress that we can decide. If the President said, I have a right to withdraw, and the Congress said, only with congressional approval, we would have a constitutional question to decide. But since the Congress had not expressed itself finally on the subject, mostly because Frank Church wouldn't allow the Senate to do that, the court said, matter is premature for determination, we take a pass. And because the Supreme Court said, we take a pass, you went back to the decision of the U.S. Court of Appeals, and the U.S. Court of Appeals had dismissed the Goldwater lawsuit. And so as a result, that wound up being the outcome. But uh, the issue of whether or not Carter could actually put this across took the entire year of 1979. It didn't end when Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act in April because it remained an active controversy until the Supreme Court finally got rid of the litigation in December of that year. A final question. This goes to the legacy of the Taiwan Relations Act. Ultimately, what is the legacy? Ha has it resulted in protection of the people of Taiwan, or was it a setback for the stability in Southeast Asia and rapprochement? I am certain that it has led to greater stability for the people of Taiwan, because in the absence of having the United States have a an ongoing interest in that area and modernizing their defense capability through ongoing arms sales, which are provided for in the Taiwan Relations Act. Uh, the ability of Taiwan to maintain uh, some degree, uh, not of legal independence, but some degree of uh, independence of thought uh, apart from the PRC, I think would be very much uh, different. When um, Deng Xiaoping visited President Carter uh, at the White House at the end of January 1979. Uh, he was concerned about uh, the United States creating a circumstance where Taiwan would feel as though it never really had to negotiate because the United States would always be standing there as a backup or a backstop to them. So he said to President Carter, he said, uh, do not create a condition under which Chang Ching Kuo, Chang Ching Kuo was the son of Chiang Kai-shek and who was the leader of Taiwan at the time, do not create a condition under which Chang Ching Kuo can thrust his tail up in the sky and think he has nothing to fear and that he can prevent negotiation. In other words, he won't have an incentive to negotiate with us if he thinks that you will always come to his defense. So, to a degree, this is, in fact, what has happened. Uh, when Zbigniew Brzezinski went to uh, China in 1978 to say the president has made up his mind and we want to have negotiations, he told the Chinese that uh, this would uh, be a, a sort of an interim step that would have to be in uh, place for a historical transition period uh, tra of some kind. I think that the Chinese listening to Dr. Brzezinski in 1978 
would not have imagined that the transition period would last for 40 years. They imagined that over a period of time, the uh, circumstance would be such that there would be a rapprochement between China and Taiwan, and that Taiwan would rejoin the motherland, much under perhaps a one-country, two-systems arrangement like Hong Kong. Okay? But because of the Taiwan Relations Act, the ongoing American interest in that part of the world, and so forth, Taiwan today, although uh, it has many more kind of commercial and other contacts with China than it did back uh, at the time of this law, still has a degree of separation that probably China never would have assumed would be the case when all of this went into effect. So the impact of the Taiwan Relations Act on Taiwan, I think, has been, has been profound. It has allowed Taiwan to maintain a degree of independence that it would never have been able to have uh, without the United States having passed that legislation and maintaining a degree of engagement with them. The book is A Legislative History of the Taiwan Relations Act, Bridging the Strait. Uh, the author is Martin Gold. Thank you so much, Mr. Gold, for your time. And thank you for yours. I appreciate it.